Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 143 of the Garden DC podcast. We talk with Bill Dugan of the Food Gardening Network, all about growing food on your balcony. The plant profile is on Spirea, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with a last word on signs of spring from Heather Prince of the Fearless Gardening blog. This episode of the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Bill Dugan. He is the editor and publisher for Food Gardening Network and Green Prints, and he is a first-time guest on our podcast. Welcome, Bill. Thank you for having me, Kathy. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to dive into a talk about small space food gardening. And I know, Bill, that you tend a small balcony food garden from your apartment in Washington, D.C. Uh, but before we jump into all of that, we're going to talk about you and your gardening background and maybe how you came to be at Food Gardening Network and Green Prints. Uh, but first, we'd like to ask, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? And the answer to that is no. I'm a <laughs> learned gardener um, at the feet and the hands of my parents. Um, I was born in Boston and grew up um, south of Boston in a coastal town. And my father was um, a sixth grade school teacher. And my mom worked from home. So he had summers off and we had a vast food and flower garden in the backyard where me and my seven brothers and sisters learned all about gardening and cooking and canning and preserving. Um, but it, I don't think it came naturally. Not born with chlorophyll in my veins, no. Which is maybe a little bit of a different path for, than others. Yeah, but it sounds like you grew up um, growing and learning by osmosis, if nothing else. Yes, yes. That's a good analogy. <laughs> Um, so tell me about growing up with seven siblings. <laughs> I'm the middle child, or close to the middle. I'm the fifth of, of the eight. Um, and it was a, a lively house. And as I said, in, especially in the, in the summers when the growing season um, was at its peak for various foods, there was lots of work to do. But was what was wonderful was being able to just go out back and, and get some lettuce or get some beans or um, pick a cucumber or a beautiful tomato uh, and, and, you know, eat it, you know, garden to table before that phrase existed, you know, so many years ago. Yeah. A lot of fun having that many siblings. Hmm. And so was it a rivalry for the best things at the food table when you were eating, sitting down for a meal? Was it, you know, a, a rush to eat or was it a relaxed dinner? Definitely relaxed, um, but lively. It was um, something that probably doesn't exist so much anymore, but 
we would sit down at the same time um, every night. Everyone was required to be there. And the rivalry about cooking and recipes started at a young age amongst all of us. Like all of my siblings are um, are cooks of varying degrees of, of expertise still today. Um, but we all had our specialties. You know, one of my brothers was really good at baking and another was really good at, you know, salad dressings and sauces. And, um, and then one of my sisters was very good with you know, doing fish, for example. We ate fish a lot and figuring out what could go with fish in terms of herbs or um, seasonings. So it was, it was a, definitely a family affair to, um, to garden, to harvest, to cook, and then enjoy it all together with lots of engaging conversation. Mm, sounds wonderful. And so when you went to school and were looking at a career, uh, what were you pursuing? <laughs> I left um, college-centric Boston to come to Washington for college. So um, I went to GW, George Washington University, and my initial idea was studying journalism. Um, nobody I know these days ever does in, in their professional life what they intended to study in college, and, and that includes me. <laughs> so sort of evolved into um, publishing, um, and about 30 years ago, more than that, 35 years ago, I started working for a nonprofit publisher of um, a nutrition health newsletter. Um, I've always had the um, the interest in food. Um, as some people say, you know, gardening, some people get by with gardening, you know, a few times a week, maybe even daily, if you have the time. Um, mm -hmm. But you have to eat three times a day. So um, I've always been in interested in food and, uh, and having quality, you know, good food and no better way to do it. I think than growing your own where you can avoid the, um, grocery store contaminants and have more control over your food supply by growing your own. Um, and I think moving here to Washington to do that, you know, the middle Atlantic for me was a, a very different experience weather wise. Um, my first, my freshman year in college, the dorm room I was in didn't have air conditioning. Um, and the first few weeks of school, uh, were brutal for me. I, uh, was used to not having air conditioning cause we didn't need it where, you know, where I grew up, but boy, in the middle of the city, um, it was brutal. <laughs> uh, now I can't live without it no matter, uh, you know, <laughs> in the house, in the car, wherever, so you were working for the nutrition newsletter and what brought you to uh, the food gardening? Well, that's an interesting story because really what I got into was publishing um, and the nutrition aspect was, was something I did for about 15 years. And then I moved on to other types of publishing, business self-improvement newsletters, small business owner, uh, self-help stuff. But I came back around to, to food because in the spring of 2020, that oh so awful time that we all remember when, you know, COVID started rearing its head all around the world, you know, the company I work for, we weren't in, into food 
publishing, but a bunch of us got together thinking about ways that we could you know, sort of weather, weather the pandemic storm. And um, what we realized in the spring of 2020 is that being forced to be more isolated than normal at home opened up, you know, avenues for doing things like food gardening or crafting or um, hobbyist and enthusiast um, things. And food gardening was a big topic of discussion. And we thought about, well, what would we do about that if we were going to publish something? Um, and after a lot of research, we discovered that there are lots of resources out there for various aspects of gardening. Um, but there was no single all-in-one place for planting, planting, growing, tending, harvesting, and then the, the big nut, the, the cooking, the recipes, you know, what to do with your harvest. Believe it or not, nothing existed digitally that covered all aspects. And as it turned out, um, the URL, foodgardening.com, um, was available. No one owned it, and so we snatched it up and spent the better part of the rest of um, 2020 strategizing about the content and the website and how we would build, um, you know, build a community. And, and basically that's how it was born. Wow. I'm just shocked that nobody had that URL. You're right. That's, that's insane. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Almost (laughs) never happens. Right. Exactly. Sometimes you get squatters on the on those kind of sites, and they, you know, they want big money. But it was completely available. Hmm. So the Food Gardening Network is a fairly recent uh, online publication. So it's all digital, correct? That's correct. There's no print aspect um, to what we do, except some of the content is presented in printable uh, PDF formats. But we don't actually do any printing. And the site itself launched in January of 2021, so just over two years ago. And it's astounding how quickly it's grown. We're up to over 325,000 email subscribers, um, active email subscribers who are recently engaged with us either by opening and clicking emails. And just uh, we're about to surpass 10,000 paid um, subscribers. So the the site has a lot of free content that we entice people in with. And then we try to upgrade and upsell them to premium premium membership, which gives them all sorts of content that you can't get for free. Hmm. So let's dive into a little bit about your own home garden and what you grow and let's describe that balcony apartment that you have in washington dc well um it's really a series of three balconies um that are connected um on the sort of northwest facing side eighth floor of a building an historic building um in foggy bottom Next to the Kennedy Center, I live at the Watergate apartment complex. So most everybody, when you tell them that, know where that is or at least have heard of it. And the balconies in the building are varying sizes. My balcony is not small, but not large either. So I would say it's sort of medium size, maybe four feet deep. Um, and it extends the entire length from 
the living room, um, the dining room, and the bedroom. So it's three distinct balcony areas. There is a, a concrete rail that you know provides some shade. Some of the balconies here have um, have slotted openings. This is solid. So when I first started trying to um, garden out there, uh, what I realized was difficult is figuring out best plants to put in spots that get the right amount of sun. I had a big failure the first year with some tomatoes because they they weren't getting the right amount of sun. Um, mm. You know, but but I've sort of figured that out. You know, it's trial and error. Like so many things in life, is how I figured out how to do it. You know where to put things and and it's the other thing you have to remember about that kind of uh, arrangement being on the eighth floor of an urban building is some of the things that you might have to worry about maybe even out where you live kathy is i don't have to worry about deer or squirrels um you know i'm not getting i don't even really get many birds so i don't have those kinds of challenges but you get other challenges, right? Like I say, the sun and sun and watering, um, probably the biggest challenges. Even with um, pests, um, one year, several years back, there was quite an infestation of, of spiders, um, which spiders are good, right? Because they eat the bugs. But there were too many of them. Um, and they started eating some of the plants. So it was, I, I do um, herbs and... Um, and foods, but I also do a handful of flowers, lantana and impatience, things that are um, can withstand heavy heat and heavy sun. And I have all um, concrete window box style planters that are raised up on um, on risers, eight of them across the three balconies. Yeah, I was going to ask, so I assume you're south-facing, correct? I am, no, I'm northwest-facing. Ah, and you're still getting that amount of sun. That's really good to, to hear. Yeah, and and again, maybe a little unique for Washington because we don't have the concentration of, of tall buildings um, in closer space. While it's urban, it's not New York or Chicago where the buildings are so close. So there's no buildings around to block the sun. Um, literally, it's completely you know open to the open to the sky. Mm-hmm. And being on the eighth floor, um, you're a little bit closer to the sun than those on the ground, right? And you talked about different different types of pests. You're not getting any climbing deer, luckily at this point, or flying in. Uh, but um, the one big thing I find with elevated gardening on rooftops and decks and balconies is the wind. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you cope um, with that higher wind exposure up there. That's a good question because in my building, there are people who face that challenge. I do not because it's, I've got, um, there are dividers between the balconies um, and there's also, as I mentioned, that that solid concrete rail um, system. So everything that I'm growing is below the the balcony line, so to speak. So even when there's a wind, now I know people on the roof or over on the other side, the river side of the building, 
you know, definitely face challenges with wind. Not an issue for me at all, which is really amazing. I just got the right positioning and the right structures to block wind from every direction. I, maybe one year, they, when they, I think it was a few years back, there was sort of hurricane-like weather. You know, that, that was just a mess. But general everyday wind, not a problem for me at all. And it could be the way you're facing the Northwest um, gives you a little bit of protection there. And that you said you have higher up railings that might be giving you more protection uh, than somebody who would have open like metal uh, slots along. They have more wind exposure that way. And especially if you're on a rooftop, then you're almost fully exposed to the wind. Yeah. And it's very windy. We have a common area roof and there are plants up there that you know, I don't maintain, but I do go up there. And when it's windy, it's really windy. Um, if I'm on my balcony, it's standing. That solid concrete um, rail probably comes up mm, mid-chest. So it's that tall, which is why I'm protected from the wind so much. Wow. But then that does shade uh, a lot of things on the ground. Yep. Yep. I have to move. Like the rosemary, um, I put in one corner because it's the sunniest. You know, it can withstand all that and it like, likes the heat. So I put it in a corner closer to the building where it gets probably the most sun of anything all day long. Hmm. And are you taking your houseplants out for a summer vacation or is there a demarcation between indoor and outdoor plants? There's definitely demarcation. When I had the spider problem, <laughs> that really discouraged me from wanting to bring outside things in. When the season's over for me, like that's it. And last year, last year I probably didn't start planting. And I plant from seedlings. I don't, I don't do anything from seed. Um, I like to buy the seedlings so that I can gauge the health of the plant, you know, at an early stage. And uh, that has worked really well for me. Basil, oregano, thyme, uh, rosemary, parsley, and again, trial and error, I figured out which plants need to be in which spots to get the best sun, and then you just got to make sure you water. I don't have any contraptions for irrigation, so um, mm -hmm. the tricky part for me is when, if I'm traveling and there's not going to be anyone here to water. Um, my building has service for that. So somebody can come in and, and, and lots of good neighbors here who are, are gardening fanatics. So I've never had a problem with that. If I didn't have access to those kinds of things, I probably would be doing something with granules or um, a slow release irrigation or something like that because I travel enough where the plants could be without me watering them for you know four or five days at a time and they'll be mm -hmm. dead. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I was going to say one of the, besides the exposure to sun and wind with elevated gardens or small space gardens like that, um, you really do have more intensive watering needs usually. Um, so it's a great amenity that your building has or, you know, get friendly with some of your gardening neighbors. Um, when I was in a condo, I actually had purchased um, a kind of a thin hose, lightweight hose that attached to my kitchen sink. Um, and so you just screwed it onto the kitchen sink faucet and I would run it out and it had a little, um, uh, 
trigger at the end. So then I could just water all the pots from that because I didn't have an outside spigot. Um, so oh. does your unit have one or do you haul water out there? I haul water out. Um, in the first couple of years, I've lived here since 2012. So the first couple of years I had a um, really um, sad and pitiful plastic watering can that actually had a crack in it and I kept taping it. And one of my gardening friends a couple of years ago said, that is, he, he was watering for me when I was gone once. And he said, that is ridiculous. Why do you have that? You need something nicer. Um, <laughs> and I, needless to say, my next birthday or Christmas, I can't remember which, um, he gifted me a nice brass. You know, it's a nice, uh, sturdier, attractive um, watering can that I use. Uh, and I, so I'm hauling outside. And usually it's mm, several trips. Right. So I'm filling it up, going out and it's only so big and, and plants need water. So it'd be several trips back and forth to the faucet inside from the faucet inside to outside. Mm. Yeah. So you might consider that hose hookup. Um, that that was like a really godsend for me not have to, you know, refill at the sink, come back out, refill at the sink. And then a drip irrigation system, if you can um, group containers together. Uh, is another mm -hmm. great idea, except for you have to have some type of open water, like a barrel or something that holds water in it um, to pull for the drip irrigation system. And in that case, people get worried about mosquitoes um, sitting in that water, but you would just add like a little bit of mosquito dunk or, or bits, um, the BT mm -hmm. bacteria that would stop them from breeding or just grow through the water often enough that you don't have to. Uh, worry about mosquitoes breeding in it yeah one of my neighbors on the 12th floor does that um mm. and she's got the a whole system for it she's got quite a a balcony garden um that wraps around the building yeah i don't get that fancy because i i i, I feel like i don't have to but the the watering is pretty you're right kathy the, the watering is probably the the biggest challenge um, mm -hmm. and my first year, um, you know, although I had done gardening before, it's like you fall out of doing it and you forget some of us, the, the little nuances. Um, I think it was the first year I, I love basil and use it so much. And I really hate, you know, paying $10 for a little thing of basil at the grocery store that, that, that suddenly gets slimy after one or two days. Um, let alone other herbs, you know, it's another reason is to have the fresh herbs and, and not be wasting having to throw away, you know, a bunch of parsley or cilantro because it's gotten wet and slimy. And um, so I just, I, I love having all the, uh, the food items just right outside the, the door so I can clip or cut or pick whatever I need. But that first year I had forgotten about, I was panicked about the watering and Specifically, what happened with the basil, which I had that time, I had two big things of basil, is I overwatered. And as you probably know, overwatering basil, like the leaves start to turn yellow, mm. which most people or a lot of people might think when you start to get distressed basil leaves like that, that maybe it's lack of water. Well, the, the yellowing is too much water. Um, and I did, did not know that. <laughs> trial and error again did not know that and 
looked up like what what do i do when my basil leaves turn yellow and give i got a whole explanation of you know over watering the watering is definitely the biggest challenge of all hmm. and i'm imagining you're not getting much rain coming in um at the angle that your balcony is so you're not getting much supplemental water that way yep you're exactly right um and even so as you know um you know the canopy that some of the plants create when they're growing when it any rain that would get in there just bounces off it doesn't get into the soil so i never pay attention to whether it's raining or not in terms of gauging whether i need to water the plants because it's completely unrelated mm -hmm. and so you know when to water by um you know trial and error at this point and feeling it do you pick up the pots to feel their weight or how do you gauge when something needs watering Good question. Um, the pots are way too heavy to be picking up all that time, the big concrete planters I have. So I've learned to use the old finger method and in three places. These are probably three feet long, one feet wide, one foot wide. So again, trial and error. One time I put my finger in, it's like, oh, it seems moist. What well, was moist at that end? <laughs> So I do I do one at each end and one in the middle with my finger to gauge whether. Um, and sometimes I've had to only water in the center hmm. um, because it's weirdly it's it'll be bone dry in the middle. And I've tried the last two years I've tried not to mix plants at all. I have enough, and I have some round pots too out there, like the rosemary. I just put in a big round clay pot by itself because it has different you know, watering needs. And, um, and I had a, last year I had a beautiful oregano plant, Greek oregano. Um, and I'm so glad I did it because that was my first year doing oregano and it, it thrived. It was like, it became bush-like. I was like, wow, this is great. So then you got to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, okay, how do I do with all this oregano besides giving it to friends, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and the, again, the recipes came across this terrific recipe using fresh chopped oregano on olive oil brushed um, zucchini halves that you grill. Um, I, think it, I think it was in the Washington Post, this recipe. And it was like, wow, this is terrific. Um, nice. You get the fresh flavor. You know, it's not even. I, I use the dry herbs when I have to, but um, there's nothing like fresh herbs. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say that it's a great tip to check in more than one spot when you have a large container, because as you said, you know, checking right next to the edge, which is what most people would do when they put their finger in, is right at the edge of the pot. Checking again um, is great advice. And so let's turn to soil and what soil you're using in your planters. And because you are in an elevated garden or a balcony garden, that means every speck of soil that you're planting in, you had to bring up there. Yes. So I don't remember every year I have to look it back up, look up again, what exactly uh, I use for mixture, but I do get, um, you know, a very and I have to get the a large bag and a small bag. So I'll get the largest bag at the garden center that they have, um, and 
and then a smaller bag is sort of adjunct in case I need to fill in or um, like last year, the, the oregano was new for me, so I needed extra soil for that. And as I also learned um, from, from years ago, is I throw away all the soil at the end of the season. You, you know, I know not everyone does that, and there's value in, you know, I, I don't have the ability to compost. So there's, you know, I don't have raised beds, blah, blah, blah. So at one point, I talked to a, a gardening friend, and it was, you know, decided that the best thing is just throw it all away um, hmm. and, and get new every year. So I hmm. completely clean out all the pots um, at the end of the season. So I'm dealing with fresh soil every year. Hmm. Yeah, that is the healthiest way to do it. I would say most balcony or rooftop gardeners are not doing that, though, because um, they're either being super frugal or they just don't have the resources to do it. But that's great to be able to completely change out the soil and have that fresh mix so it doesn't compact over several years in the pot and so it's not depleted of the nutrients uh, the nutrients that come with it every year and that was the next question I was going to ask you about composting so you said you have no access to compost or um, where you could dump this soil so you're literally just putting out with the um, waste treatment correct yes yep we have um, gardening waste removal here. A lot of gardeners in our building, there's a whole gardening committee. Um, they actually plant down in the pool area, they plant common area um, items that everybody can use. So um, sometimes I coordinate with them about sort of oddball things that I might not use that often, or I'm not going to waste my balcony space to grow mint which grows like a weed because they have a big, huge container of it down at the pool. And if I need mint, I just go down there and clip it. Um, yeah, but there's a whole um, gardening waste removal service um, that the building has because there are so many gardeners here. Um, but the soil, going back to the soil, you know, I, I forgot this, that, you know, from when I first started 11, 10, 11 years ago, um, I did keep the soil um, and then what became a hassle and the soil, you know, I'm not having to buy tons of soil. So the cost factor wasn't an issue for me ultimately, as I learned, but what did matter is that when I was reusing it, you know, again, another year, I had to worry about nutrient depletion, as you mentioned, um, sometimes, you know, pests that could um, survive the winter um, in the, in the, the soil. And I was having to amend the soil. Well, it was just easier, um, and more convenient for me to just get new soil. Um, mm -hmm. cause all the time and effort and money I was spending to fix the soil that sat there all winter, I, it was easier just to buy new. Mm -hmm. Especially with intensive food gardening, um, like that and, you know, carrying over, diseases from one plant to another, say your tomatoes or your brassicas, um, that's the best way for sanitation and to keep a clean, hopefully disease-free gar garden as possible. Um, so you said earlier that you started from seedlings and uh, started seedlings and not from seeds. Are you starting any of those seedlings indoors under lights yourself or are you purchasing them? And then what is your source if you're purchasing them? 
Yeah, good question. Um, I did try that at one point, the starting inside, but that, you know, that I don't have the, um, the space for it for them to, you know, and there's more equipment that's needed to do that. Um, so what I do is, and it's a timing game, right? I can't buy everything all at once and plant it all at the same time because things are at different stages of, of maturation. And I need to, um, usually the flowers, the lantana and the um, impatience I can do, um, sooner, but I want to wait until I go to a garden center where I can see that basil plants are, are more than just popping their heads out, right? A little bigger than, than an infant seedling, so to speak. Whereas, um, you know, a rosemary plant, I'm looking for something that's a little more mature. Um, and it, I do think that buying the seedlings, and again, I go back to saying trial and error, is it a great way to gauge the health of the plant um, where it's already like taken hold and has started to grow? Um, and so that works for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it gives you a little bit of a head start in the season, especially with those cool season varieties. Um, so are you doing um, the shoulder seasons now or are you just doing summer planting? Um. Well, that, that's another good question. I think one year I started the basil earlier than I normally do. Last year, it was probably mid-late May. Um, it's been an odd couple of years temperature-wise in the middle of Atlantic because, you know, despite those really um, uh, hot summers of my college days, you know, this has been more unpredictable. Um, while this past winter was mild, um, you know, and yesterday particularly, you know, what did it hit 80 degrees here on on March 23rd? Um, that's less common now. The temperature swings from cool and even cold to hot are, um, are really extreme. Yeah, so last year, I think I planted the basil, maybe it was Memorial Day weekend, but maybe five or six or seven years ago, I had planted in April because the weather had turned warmer already. And uh, I'm glad last year I waited because I think we had some cold coldness that just would create challenges I didn't need to deal with. But I think everything that I'm planting is in by the 1st of June. But like, I'm not thinking about planting um, now, you know, it's the last week of, of March. I'm not thinking about planting yet. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's, I looked at the weather forecast for the next 10 days and it's still like just a little too cool for some of the things mm-hmm. I want. Yeah. Cause you're mainly doing uh, summertime crops and not a cool season like peas or something like that. That's right. So let's talk about some of those plants or varieties that you love to grow. So you mentioned some of the herbs like basil. Do you have particular tomatoes or peppers that you like? Um, I tried peppers one year unsuccessfully. I tried strawberries one year very unsuccessfully. I wish I could because I love those things. Um, but tomatoes are, are the easiest and there's so many different varieties, um, you know, from 
doing cherry tomatoes to Roma or beefsteak tomatoes. Um, those are my favorites. I use Roma tomatoes a lot because Roma tomatoes are good for cooking mm-hmm. because they tend to be firm, whereas like a beefsteak is great for slicing in a in a raw sandwich. Um, but I love the Romas because they're great for sauces and stews and things. They they tend to be more firm. Um, so that they hold up more fleshy exactly and they hold up mm-hmm. when you're cooking them i mean usually when things are going i'm making tomato sauce once a week um wow. you know fresh with roma tomatoes basil um garlic uh i roast them and then i put them through the food processor to make to make sauce it's one of my favorites because you can put that on everything yeah, sounds great. I think I might be inviting myself over to dinner sometime <laughs> for some of that fresh tomato sauce. Yes, it's one of my specialties. And making me wish for uh, summertime at this point. And I'm going to encourage you to try peppers again, uh, but not necessarily the large sweet peppers, but um, mm-hmm. some of the small culinary peppers are so prolific and and such an easy plant to grow that I think you'll have success with a lot of those if you try them. They're almost set it and forget it plants um, in my community garden plot. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a good, that's a good piece of advice because I, I did try the big, the large bell peppers and there are peppers like tomatoes. There are so many varieties. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. There's so many different ones. And to get those, you know, big grocery store type green or sweet peppers, that takes a lot of intensity um, for the plant. But like the Mexican hat pepper, if you've ever seen that, just such a cute little sweet pepper, um, you know, just the size of like a small plum or something, not even that big and prolific. Just the plants are just Mm -hmm. covered in them. Um, which brings us to when we're talking about prolifically growing and especially those tomatoes, tomatoes are heavy feeders. So are you adding any extra fertilizers or plant food to those containers to boost that, that fruit production? No, not needed. I get, you know, I don't know why most people I know have to do that or do that to get more or bigger or more frequent uh, fruit, not needed. I, I don't know why. It's the same soil I use for everything else. Nothing different. Mm-hmm. It's probably, you know, you have the good sun exposure, um, not blocked by buildings. So you're getting that intensity. Um, and food and plants make their own food, right? Through, um, mm-hmm. you know, photosynthesis. The Anything we're adding as far as fer- fertilizers or food as they sell it in the stores is really vitamins. Um to give it a boost and if you have a good balanced soil mix you're not needing that so that's that's good now one one friend of mine that, who does balcony uh, gardening too buys um very inexpensively buys um fish heads from you know the fish market and uses them to fertilize the tomato soil um puts them right down into the soil because there's so many nutrients in that and most mm-hmm. of the markets don't want the heads because the consumers don't want the heads to eat. It's too difficult. Um, yes. But great fertilizer for tomatoes specifically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're a little squeamish about 
actual fish heads, they do sell fish emulsion fertilizer, just organic um, fish emulsion. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, again, I've said it probably before on this podcast, but I'm going to recommend never use that for indoor uh, food production (laughs) or on any indoor plants, (laughs) (laughs) only for your outside planters. uh, Because I've had a few uh, listeners do that and um, readers for the magazine, and and they've reported um, not pleasant side effects (laughs) to using fish fertilizers inside their home. Yeah, it's it's the smell that doesn't go away for a while. But um, I was going to say, as we wrap up now, um, any advice for beginning small space food growers who want to get out there and they've just maybe moved into an apartment, how they should get started? Yeah, I think it's better to start small. I know the first year I tried to do too many things. Like try, you know, try just a few things um, the first time you're, you know, out of the gate. You don't have to plant everything that you like. You know, pick three, four or five things um, and see if you can get, you know, get some experience under your belt, so to speak, so that you learn um, how your balcony or your patio or your small space you know, uh, it works when it comes to planting, whether it's food plants or regular flowers, because every space is different. You know, if you've got a patio on a ground floor, um, you know, the, the, the sun situation is going to be different from what I have. So I would say start small. Um, don't do more than a half a dozen things. And, you know, you can go to any local garden center and get the basics. And most most of the centers I've ever gone to, the people are very helpful. Um, even if you go to a Home Depot, um, the people in the gardening area there are usually from the nurseries, or they're from you know they, when they del- if you go when they're there, you can talk to somebody who really knows about the plants. Um, so I wouldn't be shy about that either. Going to you know sort of big box gardening centers, especially to get materials. And plants, if you know, if you can't find them anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if that's your only resource, um, that's good to know. And you know, in the city or urban areas, I find the farmers markets and talking directly to the farmers and sourcing some seedlings from them is always nice as well. Because if they're growing tomatoes, they yep. usually have extra tomato seedlings to sell. And good advice about starting small and just a few things and every balcony is different you have a slightly different angle to the sun as you said slightly different wind exposure and just like in the garden soil in a home lawn you're going to have microclimates you know one corner is going to be different than another so moving plants around to see right plant right place is always a great principle absolutely absolutely Well, thank you so much, Bill, for sharing your experiences on balcony food growing. And how can our listeners contact you or find out more about the Food Gardening Network? Um, Anybody can go to our website, as I mentioned earlier. It's www.foodgardening.com. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, um, you you know, my email address is there. Phone number is there. Um, and check out some of the free materials. Great. Thank you again, Bill. Thank you, Kathy.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Spirea plant profile. Spirea is a group of hardy shrubs with 100 unique species. They often have colorful foliage and are covered in abundant, delicate blooms. The genus name Spirea originates from the Greek word for wreath. Spireas are native to Japan, China, and Korea. They are hardy to USDA zones 4 through 8. They do best in full sun and are tolerant of a variety of soil types. Once established, they are drought and pollution resistant, making them good choices for urban gardens. Spirea are generally fast growing and many are compact and mound forming. If any pruning is needed, it is best to do so right after flowering. It is not necessary to deadhead them. They are attractive to butterflies, bees, and other pollinators. According to the National Garden Bureau, who declared 2023 as the year of the spirea, the main varieties of spirea available commercially include the Japanese spirea, which are known for their wide flower and foliage color range and their low-growing mounding form, the Bomalda spirea, which are similar to Japanese spirea, they're a cross between the spirea albiflora and spirea japonica, flowers range from white to deep pink, the birchleaf spirea, which are known for their larger blue-green birch-like leaves and stunning fall color. The Korean spirea, which are native to forest slopes and rocky areas. The Van Hout or bridal wreath spirea, which are known for their vase-shaped habit, flowing, arching branches, and cascading, showing spring blooms. Spirea, you can grow that. new this week in the garden? Well, my weeping hygien cherry has jumped into bloom thanks to that 80 degree day we had. And cherry blossoms are also blooming at the tidal basin. If you don't want to deal with those crowds, we have a list of 17 plus cherry blossom viewing alternatives in the DC region on our blog at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. So check that out. Our March 2023 issue has also been posted to our blog, and that includes a cover story on sensational sedges, what you need to know about mosquitoes and PFAs, growing horseradish, the red-shouldered hawk, designing with native plants, orchid watering tips, low-maintenance gardening techniques, and much more. Again, check that out at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. In the local gardening world, a couple events that you might want to attend include the Camellia Society of the Potomac Valley's show and sale Saturday, April 6th and Sunday, April 7th at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, 
and the Franciscan Monastery Garden Girls Guild's plant sale on Saturday, April 29th and Sunday, April 30th at the Franciscan Monastery in Washington, D.C. They are also offering free drop-in garden tours beginning Saturday, April 1st at 11 a.m. and 12 noon. Meet at the Monastery Visitor's Entrance and you can find out more details about that at fmgg.org. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is the last word on Signs of Spring by Heather Prince of the Fearless Gardening blog. Is it spring yet? Perhaps in the Washington, D.C. area, but here in the suburbs of Chicago, we'll see the occasional stubborn snowflake through April. And yet, if you pay close attention, there are tiny signs everywhere, subtle notes on an otherwise winter-muted landscape. Let's walk outside and see what's blooming. Snowdrops. My snowdrops have been flowering since early February. I've planted snowdrops to maintain my sanity in a Midwestern winter. After Christmas, I start looking for their pale green shoots every time the temps tip above freezing. 
infused with their own antifreeze, these tough little beauties are also not munched on by the bunnies. Over the years, they've seeded around, and it's fascinating to see where their cheerful little white flowers have chosen to dwell. Thanks to their eleosome on their seeds, the resident ants are doing a good job planting them at random. An eleosome is a sugary, fatty coating on the seed that is particularly attractive to ants. They take the seeds back to their young for a nice snack, distributing the plants hither and yon. You'll also find eleosomic seeds in many native ephemeral wildflowers. I treasure the fleeting loveliness of Snowdrop's elegant miniature bell-like flowers. There's even been an occasional early emerging bee visiting them now and again. My tiny snow crocuses are also starting to fade as our days reliably linger above 50 degrees. However, the second round of crocus is eagerly taking the stage from the Tommy crocus to the Yaltas and Vanguards with their purple and white petals. The Iris reticulata is also in full bloom, and it looks like this year the purples and blues have won out over the yellow ones. I freely admit to Iris collector tendencies, and so of course, I need them all. I purposefully plant handfuls of the tiny bulb irises near walkways and paths to catch the eye. They aren't terribly long lived in my soils, and I eagerly await their architectural petals each spring. The winter aconite has also decided to put in an appearance. Who can resist brilliant golden buttercup flowers on a damp, foggy March day? I clearly need about 10,000 more of them. I encourage you to embrace these fleeting flowers and plant them in abundance. In these quixotic March days, as I perambulate the estate, really a standard suburban lot, there's always something new. Each day brings another bud swelling or sprout growing. The silver maple trees are blooming and the elms will soon follow. The robins have arrived and are vying with the cardinals for the best nesting spots, so mornings are now loud with birdsong. Take a few moments to seek out the signs of spring. Breathe in that wine-sweet air on a warm day. All too soon will be consumed by the cacophony of summer and all its glitter. Now is the time to embrace small treasures and tiny surprises. This was The Last Word on Signs of Spring by Heather Prince of the Fearless Gardening blog. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. 
Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to WashingtonGardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.